Our vision, uh, as reiterated by Pastor Albert in our senior pastor series uh, all of September, is to be a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches. That's the essence and the core uh, of our vision, is to be a vibrant church of disciple makers. And if we are a vibrant church of disciple makers, we are going to make disciples, we're going to reproduce vibrant disciple makers, vibrant churches. And so today we're going to begin our eight-week congregational series. Right now, uh, from October until the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, all three congregations uh, and the youth as well, so all four worship services are going to focus specifically on a unique subject, topic, or exposition as it relates to the needs of their congregation. And so for the English congregation, I've entitled our series, Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. Disciple Makers in a Post-Christian World. And today, we're simply going to give a series overview. And so, just so you can get an overview of where we're headed, uh, the first four sermons will serve as a foundation. So, today I'll give you the series intro, and then for the next two sermons, we'll talk about disciple makers uh, in the church and in the home. Uh, but we want to make a certain type of disciple maker, and we feel the scripture informs us that we are to make doctrinal disciple makers in the church and in the home. We'll show you starting today where we see this in scripture, but we'll go on detail on that. And a lot of what we're going to do in terms of application in the next two weeks is lay out for you how English, how the English congregation anchors the rest of our church in terms of disciple making and how the family ministry really is the undergirding basement that holds together the three congregations in our under one house, right, under one roof. And so we'll talk about that in, in the days to come and how everybody is to be involved in that. Uh, and then on the, on the fourth week, uh, we feel that in our culture, we need to be resilient truth tellers in season and out of season, and this is what Scripture prescribes to us. These are the foundations, and I'll be giving those four sermons, okay? Then as we move into specific areas of application, starting in the last week of, um, last week of October, uh, Pastor Gabe will be talking about technology, and so he'll talk about that. I, I don't know much about technology, just theology, so he'll talk about technology. Uh, and then uh, Pastor Albert will talk about global Christianity, how uh, to, be, to be disciple makers in a post-Christian world, we got to understand how we're globally connected to what God is doing in this entire world. And then uh, Gabe will come back on the 13th and talk about consumerism. Okay, so those are three areas of application. More specific areas of application, like hotbed issues, uh, we will tackle more in our um, Sunday school hour. Then finally, I'm going to conclude uh, as we're wrapping up leading into Thanksgiving uh, with a message on we need to be resilient peacemakers okay, for a post-Christian world. And this is around November. You know what happens in November. Uh, and so right around that time, I think it will be a perfect time to give this sermon. Uh, and then we'll move into Advent uh, on the following week. Okay, so that's a little bit of layout of where we're headed. Um, today's sermon, once again, as I mentioned, will serve as uh, the, the, the introduction, and we'll start with some definitions. We talk about being disciple makers and uh, disciples. There's a difference. A, a disciple is a student uh, and a mentee. A disciple maker is a teacher and a mentor. Now, Jesus Christ, in the Great Commission, he calls every believer to make disciples. So we need to be both. We need to be equipped as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are students of the Word of God. Uh, we are mentees in terms of being spiritually discipled by His Word and by spiritual leaders and teachers. 
But if we take the Great Commission seriously in Matthew 28, we also need to be equipped to make disciples. And so everybody, not just pastors, not just Sunday school teachers, not just counselors and leaders, every Christian needs to strive to be a disciple maker. Now, this is not a process that happens overnight, but in little ways, we are disciple makers in the home, in the church, in our groups. We are to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and that is really the scriptural prescription in terms of the response to a post-Christian world. We, we throw that term around a lot. And so let's define post-Christian, at least in terms of where we're coming from uh, or what I'm referring to in these messages and in these talks. Generally, you'll hear various definitions of post-Christian. Post-Christianity is something that we saw coming out of Europe and into North America where societies were once built upon Christianity as the moral mechanism that created the cultural commonwealth and standards. Now, that doesn't mean that the nation itself or that, you know, Constantine and, 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 and that era, that they were truly Christian in an evangelical sense at every, at every degree. It just means that generally, when you, when you talk about even secular society, right, generally it's accepted that Christianity is a good source of moral teaching. In fact, that many of our values, even if you don't want to believe in Christ, many of our values are commonly accepted as coming from a foundation of Judeo-Christian teaching, right? Uh, and what we're experiencing is Europe, a long time ago, has moved into post-Christianity. Canada is considered post-Christian. Pastors in Australia, down under, would consider themselves a post-Christian nation. And what we're seeing in, in certain parts of America is that, is that we're not in the Bible Belt, so in certain places, we're moving into a more post-Christian world. And so we simply want to define uh, post-Christianity as a society that was historically built on Christian moral standards, but now rejects Christianity as a true religion or as a source of moral goodness. A post-Christian post-Christian does not mean, when we use that term, post-Christian does not mean that Christianity is over. Christianity is not over. In fact, there's, a, there's another term that theologians are calling post-secular. And this is what you're seeing in some of the Scandinavian countries where the home churches are growing and thriving, where you have this completely post-Christian secular nation where now these home churches are, are bringing revival. And actually, when you see the missionary work and the explosion of Christianity in the global south, a lot of the agencies that are sending missionaries, that have sent missionaries into Africa and in Southeast Asia are from some of those Scandinavian nations, right, that are secularized, largely post-Christian, but it's those those home churches, those inner mission networks. And so that's why it's important that we are global Christians to understand what God is doing. Uh, but that's an example of a post-Christian society turning into secular and then post-secular. But post-Christian certainly does not mean that Christianity is over. Okay? And, but when I describe post-Christian, what I'm saying, so in this sermon series, when Gabe's speaking to it, when Pastor Albert's speaking to it, we are talking specifically of a cultural moment where society has taken an anti-Christian posture. So I've said this before, where in the 90s and the 2000s, uh, generally people in America would say, oh, Christianity, that's a good thing. I'm not Christian, I'm not Catholic, but Christianity, that's, churches are a place where we still send our kids for moral goodness, or that's acceptable 
That's an acceptable Sunday activity. There's watching football, playing golf, selling real estate, going to church. That's a good thing. Good that you, 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 you know, everything's relative, right, in terms of a postmodern world in the 90s and the 2000s. We move from postmodernism now, uh, in, from this whole relativistic mindset into a, into a, if you're a Christian, if you're part of the Christian church, then you're oppressive and evil and, and, and you're bad, right? And so society now views Christianity as oppressive, corrupt, and political. But let's put things into perspective, the degree of antagonism is going to differ based on where you live. So if you're in the Bible Belt, there's still a great degree of cultural Christianity. Not necessarily, not necessarily true evangelicalism, but generally there's more of a cultural Christianity. And if you're in the Pacific Northwest, however, there's more of an antagonistic culture towards Christianity. Now, where are we? We are in suburban Southern California. We're part of Los Angeles County, but we're very close to Orange County. And we're also close to San Bernardino County. Now, so how should we understand the world that we live in? We are not completely in a post-Christian world. Let me remind you that Southern California has some of the largest megachurches in the nation. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a Christian culture. We're in the state of California. But living in certain parts of Orange County is going to give you a greater sense of cultural acceptance as opposed to, let's say, San Francisco. Do you get where I'm going with this? Does that make sense? So where do we see the most post-Christian antagonism? It might be if you work for a tech company. It might be in your workplace. It might be if you work for a certain government agency, but it's social media. That's where the ideas that are coming from San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, New York, Boston, places that we love, that God loves, but it's, that's going to show up. That is going to get to you. That's going to get on your phone, even if you live in the middle of Texas. Right? So at the end of the day, the degree of describing post-Christianity differs from where you live. So we have to understand that we are not completely in a post-Christian world, but we're moving towards that world, and that's what we want to equip you for, okay? Does that make sense? Can I get some amens? Is there any response? <laughs> Is there any response? Everybody's dead? <laughs> All right. Well, the, the, the first thing that, that we need is discernment for difficult times. Discernment for difficult times. Today, I want to speak to this idea where I see Paul prescribing to Timothy living in his own version of an anti-Christian society, a post-Christian society. And so I want to speak to this central idea that Paul's prescription, the New Testament prepares us by saying we need discernment, discernment. I listen to one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he constantly says, discernment, discernment. Some of you know who that is, discernment. <laughs> so, so I might slip into that just on accident. Discern, discernment, it's discernment. We need discernment. How do you get discernment? Through doctrine, not just doctrine, but doctrinal disciple making. Okay? So we need discernment. How do you get discernment? It's not just by learning doctrine. But learning that doctrine and passing it on to the next generation or to other people and making disciples. That's what we see in the New Testament. 
Point number one today is discernment for difficult times. Discernment for difficult times. And the New Testament has prepared us for our post-Christian world. If you have God's Word, meet me now in the book of 2 Timothy. I'll give you a moment to grab your Bibles and turn there. I'll also have it on the screen for you. But in a post-Christian world, I want you to begin to read your own Bibles. Because in a post-Christian world, I as a Christian leader um, can say anything to you. And you need to have discernment by opening the Word of God in your hands to discern whether or not Hanley is telling you the truth. And so discernment, so grab God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verses 1 to 4. Notice where we're getting this idea of discernment from. It begins with the command in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, but understand this. The New American Standard says, realize this. Some of your translations say, know this. In the original languages, this is the key command of the first four verses. In the original languages, understand this is a present continuous imperative. Sounds nerdy, but all that means is it is an imperative that's continuous. That means that the locus of that command was not just for Ephesus. Paul was writing to Timothy, who was one of the pastors in Ephesus. And Ephesus faced the threat of false teaching. And so when, when Paul writes this with his pen in the continuous imperative, he's saying that the church for every generation needs to discern this, needs to understand this. Understand this applies to you and me today. That understand this. And then what does it say? That in the last days, there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. What are the last days? The last days, that is a term that the New Testament uses to describe the time starting when Jesus first inaugurated his earthly ministry, and it, it will extend all the way until the time that Jesus returns. Okay, so that is the last days. And, and we see that used throughout the Bible. We see that used throughout the Bible. One example is James chapter 5, verse 3. James chapter 5, James was talking to the early church, and he wrote, It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. But he was speaking to his own audience, saying, You audience that he's writing to, you guys are storing up your treasure. Not in heaven, but on earth. And so James was speaking to the early church as being part of the last days. And so the last days began with the early church, and it leads into our times. And notice what, going back to Timothy now, it's on the screen, it says that, that there will become times of difficulty. The Greek word for time is not chronos, it's kairos. It is, it is, it is a, an appointed time. It is the time of the church age in this context, is, is that difficult times will come. There will be times of difficulty, tribulation. It won't be easy times for the church. And more specifically, you're going to see in verses 2 to 4, which I'm going to read to you as one unit, that when you read this, you're going to say, oh, that, this list of vices describes our culture today. But here's what you need to understand. Here's what Paul wanted Timothy to understand that these vices were in the Ephesian church. Yeah, they're in the world, but it's in the church. It's in the church, and it's in the church today. Okay, so now let me read to you verses 2 to 4. So Paul, you're telling us there's times of difficulty. What do you mean by that? 
Well, here's the difficulty. Verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. I read verse 5 as well, but we're just going to tackle in, in verses 2 to 4, we see 18 characteristics, 18 sinful vices described. If you add verse 5, that's 19, but verse 5, I'm going to use that to start explaining the false teachers. Now, this list of vices, it describes the false teachers, their followers, and ideas that are common to Ephesus during that time. And, and I, we also want you to consider that these are vices that we see today. Okay, and we're going to group these vices. So I'm not going to take these in order. But if you'll notice this list, that you'll notice that it begins with lovers of self, lovers of money. And then in verse 4, it ends with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So you kind of see that there's bookends. And at the center of it is, is at the center of it, it says, uh, without, it says slanderous. In verse 3, that is the center, slanderous. And so we'll get to that. We'll build inward that way. Slanderous. Um, that word is, is actually a word that, that we would use to describe the devil. In the Greek, it is diaboloi, diaboloi in this one. But the, but the Greek word for devil is diablos. So basically slanderous, like the devil. So he does have some, uh, some structure to this, but I don't want to bore you with Greek exegesis, so we're just going to group it this way. Okay? So the first group that I want you to see is misdirected love misdirected love. This is the general self-centeredness that we see. Notice the description. Lovers of self, lovers of money, not loving good. So now we're going to the end of the list. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So it begins and ends with this misdirected love. There's a self-centeredness. Second grouping that we see is pride and hostility towards God and others. Proud, arrogant, treacherous. That just sounds evil. You know, uh, reckless, Swollen with conceit, abusive. Now, this word in the Greek is, is the same word where we, we get blasphemy. It's blasphemous. So actually, uh, some translators would say this is abusive speech towards God, where you're cursing God, and towards others. Okay, so there in that, in that second grouping, you see generally pride and hostility. So you move from self-centeredness, self-centeredness to pride and hostility towards God and others. These are character flaws, character sins. Uh, and then the third grouping is evil towards others. So you move from pride and hostility towards straight-up evil, and they're all related. And so there you have disobedient to parents, evil towards your parents. I think it's always interesting that this is in a list. You know, so you have all these treacherous, evil, disobedient to parents. You know, uh, take a time out. You know, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. This talks about our culture today online uh, and in society where people are unwilling to be appeased. They're not willing to compromise. Uh, people are, are more willing to be polarized. They're unwilling to, to talk things things through, to have a civil argument and to agree to disagree, right? So unappeasable, without self-control, brutal, and then slanderous, 
slanderous, right? Blasphemous. Slanderous, like the devil. Slanderous. Now, here's the post-Christian application. Most of these characteristics you and I understand, and we don't have time today to get through every single one. But I just want to highlight a few. Lovers of self describes our post-Christian world. The self today is the greatest idol of our times. Everything in society is about self-discovery, self-help, self-expression. Find yourself, find your identity, search within, determine your own gender, your own sexuality, your means of pleasure, uh, and even the material world. All the comforts and the material goods that you can afford are personalized for your personal needs. No longer are we being taught what is right and what is true from community, meaning your community, your family, your extended family, institutions like schools, government, so forth. But now everything centers back on the individual. Where personal happiness and personal freedom have become the gods of the West. Let me say that again. Personal happiness and personal freedom have become the gods of the West. And so when, when Gabe talks about technology and consumerism, he'll dig into where we see this in a more specific way. Everything in our world revolves around the self. The love of self leads to all types of vices in our passage. And so now post-Christian culture, what they're doing is they are wanting to deconstruct, cancel, or challenge any institution or religion that challenges the self. So if the church as a religious institution tells you that the Bible or some, some external authority tells you what your gender or your sex is or, or what we should do in terms of the sanctity of life, then the, the popular culture is, well, that's challenging self-expression, self-determination, and self uh, and freedom. So anything that tells you that you cannot be whatever yourself wants to be uh, is going to be deconstructed and canceled. And that's what you see on the media. And so that's what I mean by we're, mov we're moving into a post-Christian culture where 10, 20 years ago, Christianity is just one thing that is acceptable even if, if, so, even if a large part of uh, uh, people, uh, the population don't agree with Christianity, but now it's being, it's saying Christianity needs to be canceled. It's oppressing the self. Lovers of money, don't need to say too much there. Lovers of money describes the greed we see in every century, in every generation. The lure of materialism, the great economic downfalls that we've seen in history, personal ruin can result from greed and financial corruption. We even see this in churches and, and religious institutions. Then proud and arrogant, I think that describes the boastful, exaggerated view of oneself that we see projected a lot of times now on social media where everybody can uh, craft their own identity and they can make themselves look, sound, and appear however they want to through technology. And so that is a way of boasting. It's a way of, uh, there's an arrogance, but there's also an arrogance of putting other people down, right? A, a, a pride of competition, and we see this consistently unappeasable, I mentioned that already, but lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This perfectly describes the sexual revolution of our time, as well as the general consumerism and materialism. So you can see that these vices are all related. And I don't want to spend too much time because I think we all recognize that these are problems outside of the church. These are problems that we deal with in the church. These are problems that we deal with in our own hearts, right? These are the sins. Now, Paul instructs Timothy moving from the vices to discernment, so discernment for difficult times. 
and, and, and to these deceptive teachers. Now, what I want you to take away from this first point is simply as Christians, we should not be afraid. We should not be taken by surprise. We shouldn't be, be overly offended by the world acting like the world because Paul and the New Testament and the Bible has already warned us. Warned us a long time ago. Difficult times are going to come. And who is going to bring these difficult times or the characteristics of sin into the church? Well, that leads to point number two. We need discernment for difficult times. We need discernment against deceptive teachers. Deceptive teachers. And let me read to you verses, verses 5 to 9 now. Notice the deception. It says, Having the appearance of godliness on the outside, but denying its power. Imperative, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin, and led astray by various passions. These women, in particular, this particular group, not all women, I've got to be clear, but these particular women in Ephesus were always learning but even though they were constantly learning, they're never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and, and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in the mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now let's start with the imperative. What's the key imperative in this passage? It's avoid such people. That is the key imperative at the end of verse 5. It is in the Greek command. Now, God's servant and God's people must avoid these deceptive teachers. Why do you avoid them? Because these are not genuine seekers. This is not the average non-Christian. This is not your Christian uh, who's struggling with sin. This is, these are people who know the Bible well enough to twist it. These are people who know how to sell religion to you, and they are after some selfish, sinful motivation. They have some sinful agenda. These are people who you need to be careful about. These are wolves. These are not people who uh, you want to uh, minister to. I mean, some people's got to minister to them, but they are bent on deceiving people. And so you need a discernment. But avoid such people needs to be understood in context. Avoid is not simply ignore them. Paul is telling Timothy, as one of the pastors of the church, uh, to excommunicate these people. That's an inference that pastors and theologians make from this passage. To avoid such people is to protect God's people from these de deceivers. Because these deceivers are going to come in and they're going to deceive people. Okay, so that is the key command. Now let's start, let's start explaining uh, who they are. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, it speaks of these false teachers as people who taught that the final resurrection had already happened. Now, why would you do that? You, you might want to say, hey, the, the bodily resurrection has already occurred. Uh, so it doesn't matter now what, what you do with your body. So maybe continue in your licentiousness or your sexual immorality. Maybe. Maybe there's just other reasons for that. We don't know specifically, but notice here that Paul does not emphasize, at least in our chapter, he does not emphasize the content of their teaching, but rather the nature of their character. He's telling Timothy and the Christians, he's not attacking their content. Maybe some of their content sounds very Christian, but it's their character. 
So first in verse 5, you see their, correct, their character is deceptive. Having the outward form of godly, godliness, but inwardly denying its power. What power? The power of the gospel, the very power that frees you from a life of sin. That is the power that they're denying. Meaning, you look at their lives, and it doesn't match up at all with, with what they're saying. And then secondly, in verse 6, it describes their method. So first, their character is obvious, but second, their method. Their method is that Paul speaks of their, their mode of operation, is that these false teachers creep. That's, that word is not good. Creep. Right? I entered a home. That's good. I entered the building. I creeped into the building. Sounds bad. Right? Why would you use that term, Paul? Because that's exactly what they're doing. But, the, but these women are allowing them in. So they're deceptive. They creep into the household and capture weak women. Now, we've got to understand what this is. Right? The word for household is a basic household. But back then, the homes were the key educational centers of those times. People are gathering homes to learn. And the early church, many times, they gathered in homes. So they're able to make it into some of these homes. Some of the commentators, uh, they infer that some of these women were very rich and wealthy and had large homes. Uh, the word capture, uh, the, the Greek word there conveys uh, capturing someone, captivating them. So this is not capture in terms of a kidnapping. Okay, there's no amber alert happening here. Instead, what's happening is that they're charming these women. And so there's all kinds of now speculation of what these false teachers were doing. That, that some say that they went in there and they were convincing them, saying, hey, we'll give you more greater knowledge. Uh, or, you know, you have these sins, and actually the Bible says the bodily resurrection has already happened, so it's okay, you can continue in your sin, don't feel so much guilt. Right? Maybe that's the false teaching. Or maybe they're going in there burdening them. Look at you. Look at you. You've been a Christian for how long? You say you're a Christian, but look at your sins. Look at how you struggle with lust. Look at you. You, you can't handle it. But if you believe in me and give me your money, you know, I offer you some freedom. Something like that. Some commentators would say that, that some of these women came from a former life of prostitution or sexual immorality. So some of them, some of these commentators infer, it's not in the text, that some of these false teachers went in and they sexually, uh, you know, practiced sexual immorality with these women because they were lovers of, of pleasure and lovers of money. So their method, though, is clear. Though we don't know exactly what they did, their method was clear. They were deceiving and they were targeting some of these women who were weaker. Their target. Now, why were these women weak? These particular women, it's, you see it in the Greek language. Verse 6, it describes them as weak in the sense of weak-willed. The language used here is not talking about physical weak, physically weak. They were weak-willed. They were spiritually weak and undiscerning. They were prone to temptation. So this would be like if you had people in your church who were struggling with sexual immorality, and they came out of that lifestyle, and now they're trying to live a life of holiness, and you have these tempters that are now preying on them and tempting them. And so that's the idea that you see here conveyed, that, that these false teachers knew exactly who to target and how to target. Because verse 6 says that they were burdened with sin. And this tells you that these women, they felt guilty. These weren't women with no conscience. These women were overburdened by sins. The weight of guilt and shame crushed them. And whatever the false teachers offered was some way to help them deal with that burden, but it was not 
the gospel. And at the end of verse 6, it says that these, these women were, were, were constantly led astray by various passions, meaning they were burdened, they were guilty, but they had no power. They were guilty, they felt guilt, but never enough conviction to have repentance. And then in verse 7, it says they were always learning. They were always learning more doctrine, never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. So there you have it. Money could be an issue that these false teachers are going after. Could be sex, one way or the other, either exploiting someone's past or actually sexual immorality being practiced and the abuse of religious power. Where do we see this today, beloved? Not just in the world, not just in the corporate world. Someone talk to me. Where do we see the abuse of money, sex, and religious authority? Where do we see that today? Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood yes. Okay. Where, where else do we see it? Here. Here, in the church. So the post-Christian world looks at the church, and the secular narrative, the main characters are not the countless faithful pastors and leaders who go to the grave faithful. The main characters of the cultural narrative is not the everyday Christian who, yes, we're honest about our struggles, but we're trying to fight to live the Christian life. The cultural narrative is some of the celebrity pastors who fall into sin or those who abuse authority or or the large-scale, you know, investigations of sexual abuse and child abuse, that's what makes the headlines. So we as Christians, we shouldn't be angry. Paul warned us about this. Paul warned us that there would be deceptive teachers like this in the Christian church, and he warned us that the world would see us in a certain way. And, and I'll show you that next week, right? That if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. So it's no wonder that the narrative of what an evangelical Christian is is oppressive, political, corrupt, pastors are corrupt, they're not to be trusted. That's the cultural narrative. So what do we need to do? Beloved, what do we need to do to show the world? Well, one, we need to live with character. We need to live with doctrine. We need to show a different narrative in our lives. That means, first and foremost, we can't be afraid of these accusations. We need to look at these accusations and say, yes, it's true. There are, there's hypocrisy everywhere. And yes, there's imperfection and sin. Call it what it is. There's sin in the church. But that's why it's important that every church member be equipped with doctrinal discernment so you can hold your pastors accountable. Doctrine is not just knowledge. Doctrine is life. Paul told Timothy, watch your doctrine and your life carefully. So you don't just want sheep. You want sheep who can think and who know their Bibles. And the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to shepherd the flock and to help them grow. And you need more discerning non-pastors, right? You need systems in the church for, like Caringwell, to have accountability. You need Christians to show the world, yeah, you know, that's out there, but there's everyday Christians like us. There's non-celebrities pastors who fight hard to stay accountable. And even us, we're prone to be accused of everything, right? The world is just against you, everything that you say. And so that's why the key that you're going to see in the next couple weeks is not more anger or fear, it's more maturity. It's more equipping. It's more strengthening. And what is the source of that strengthening? It's Scripture. In other words, 
Every single Christian needs to know how to use their sword rightly, in the right way, in the right context. Everybody needs to be a disciple maker. And, and then in verse, verse 8 and 9, Paul gives some illustrations. He compares these false teachers to Janus and Jambres. Uh, and these two characters are not actually found in the Bible. These are extra-biblical characters that are found in Jewish tradition, but we have no reason to, uh, to deny that they really existed. These were the magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. These were magicians, and so that's where they tried to imitate the religious signs and wonders of God's servant, but they could not reproduce the divine miracle like Moses. They pretended to do the work of God, but they lacked spiritual power. So that's the illustration. Outward form of godliness, but no power. And then in verse 8, Paul describes these men. I read it to you, men corrupted in mind. They're disqualified. The word for disqualified is the same word used for metals that did not pass the test of purity. These are impure metals that are rejected and to be rejected and discarded. In the same way, these false teachers are to be disqualified. They're disqualified, they're impure, and they're useless for effective ministry. Verse 9, Paul says, but they will not get very far. Why will they not get very far? Because Paul is going to tell Timothy, preach the word. In season and out of season, correct people. Preach the word. Warn people, just like I did. And if you get that Christmas cantata flyer, it's from a cult, discard of it. Graciously discard of it. And tell people in your small group, don't go to that. Right? Preach the word. And if you have the Word of God and your people have the Word of God and they know how to handle the Word of God, then these false teachers will get, not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all as was that of these two men. Now the post-Christian application that I just gave you as just as deceptive teachers preyed upon weaker Christians, the answer is we need stronger Christians. We are all well aware of the plethora of scandals. We need Christians with discernment. Christians who love God and love His Word. And so now let me give you a preview. Point number three is just a preview. And this is going to set up for the next three sermons. His answer is discernment how through doctrinal disciple making. Here in the English congregation, we want to make disciples of a certain kind. We want to make disciple makers who are doctrinal. Let me show you. In verses 10 to 13, which I'm not going to preach now because this is next week, the key command is continue. Paul says, Timothy, difficult times are going to come. Deceptive teachers are going to come. These, de these deceptive teachers are going to cause people who are going to have itching ears to hear whatever they want to hear. They're going to want their self Preach to. They're not going to put up with sound doctrine. Here's what I want you to do, Timothy. Continuing, continue following Paul's teaching and example. So Paul says, continue to follow good examples. Don't listen to what the media has to say. Find good pastors. I'm not even saying me. Hold me accountable. Find good spiritual leaders and follow their example and their teaching. Secondly, Continue in the scriptures that were taught to you from childhood. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Your mother and your grandmother. That's in the home. So some of you are saying, well, I'm not a parent anymore. Are you a grandparent? 
Some of you are like, I'm not a parent. Well, Paul wasn't a parent. He was a spiritual parent. So this is where everything, everybody comes into play. We're afraid of the, of, the, of the subsequent generations being engulfed by a post-Christian and anti-Christian culture. The solution is doctrinal disciple-making. But in order to be doctrinal disciple-makers, you have to be doctrinal disciples yourself, not just the pastors. A mature church that is equipped in, in Christian theology Every believer, whether you're a parent or not, being a spiritual parent to the next generation, being Paul's and Pauline's or Paula's <laughs> to the Timothy's and the Teresa's in the next generation, right? And then, it, and then if you're a parent and you're a grandparent, that's Timothy. Timothy had a foundation before Paul even got to him because his grandma and his mom did this doctrinal disciple-making, and so he had the foundation of the Word of God taught to him at a very young age. That's our goal. That's doctrinal disciple-making intergenerationally. And third, he says, there's a lot that's out there. There's a lot of narratives out there. But Timothy, trust that Scripture is authoritative and sufficient. It is effective for life and ministry. And then finally, he says to Timothy, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, preach the word, but what we're going to do is say, we all need to be truth tellers. Even if you're not a pastor, we all need to proclaim. We all need to learn how to handle the scriptures and proclaim the scriptures with resilience, right? Preach in season and out of season. Preach against the itching ears who don't want to hear. Preach against the prevailing culture. But there's a winsome way to do it. There's a way where we got to engage the culture, but we start with the church is that when these false ideas come into the church, first we deal with what's in the church, right? That's Paul's answer, doctrinal disciple-making. So here's the big idea of our series and of today's message, is that Jesus' church must respond to difficult times and deceptive teachers, how? By reproducing doctrinal disciple-makers in the church, in the home, trusting Scripture, Jesus' church must respond to difficult times and deceptive teachers by reproducing doctrinal disciple-makers. Doctrinal disciple-making begins and ends with Christ and Scripture. So if you have God's Word, look at one verse where I'll end, 2 Timothy 3.15. Notice what, what Paul was able to build upon. By the time the pastor or the apostle got to Timothy, he already had a foundation laid in his heart from his grandma and his mom. Verse 15, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise, not just knowledgeable, but wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right, so the scriptures, which he explains in verses 16 and 17, which we'll preach through coming weeks, we'll preach through verses 16 and 17. It says that everything you've been taught from childhood points towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, which makes you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the key application for us is that we need to start as an English congregation making that shift. It doesn't mean we take away everything. We first begin with our English Sunday school. Not every Sunday school class. We can't take everything away. In this entire church year, so up until next 
December, from December 20, you know, now to December 2023, the general Sunday school class, rather than teaching systematic theology, we will have you read systematic theology. And when you come to class, we're going to discuss and challenge it, basically preparing you basically to think as if you're teaching it at some level. And we'll go slowly, conversationally, so it's not like a lecture, conversationally, having you engage, and we'll make adjustments if needed. You know, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make theologians, everyday theologians, not theologians just sit behind a book. How do you engage culture and the ideas? That's only one of the three classes, and in the future, one of the four classes. Then next year, the pastors are no longer teaching the general Sunday school class for a season. Next, the next church year, the pastors, so that would be me and Gabe, but, you know, well, we'll, we'll split up, but I would spend my time training future teachers during the Sunday school hour, right? So, so we're now equipping disciple makers. The, the small groups, we're going to give you a lot more time, okay? But counseling, there was a time where all the pastors did all the counseling, but now outside of special occasions or outside of things that belong to the ordained office, like marriage, when it comes to basic things like anxiety, depression, we are equipping lay counselors, being equipped through ACBC and, and biblical counseling. And so rather than getting a pastor, I know, you know, you want the pastor, but these men and women are actually more equipped than the pastors to deal with some of the current issues. And so the coming years when you come for counseling, there will be non-pastors, so what we're doing is we're trying to get more mature. We're trying to get stronger. We're equipping the laypersons, and we're extending ourselves. The more maturity we have, the more we guard against corruption from pastors possibly coming into the churches, false teachers coming into the churches, false ideas. And the more we equip you, then all of our counselors, all of our counselors working with the youth and our Sunday school teachers have been equipped to be little mini disciple makers. And as we get stronger and stronger, and we're equipping parents to be primary disciple makers in the home, and grandparents to be, be disciple makers in the home, our church grows stronger and stronger, and we can then be a vibrant church that reproduces disciple makers in vibrant churches. Okay, so we need to take slow steps. So we're not going to go everything and just pull everything away, but 25% of where the pastors used to spend their attention Ministering to everyone, we need to now focus on disciple makers and teachers and trainers and leaders. 25% of all of our ministries, except for small groups, focus not on the average person, but on leaders, okay, training leaders. And eventually, 25% of the small groups just really focusing on the topic of discipleship, which we've already asked the small group leaders, give them a year to pray about how are you going to bring disciple making into your, uh, your, your group. And we just give the small groups time. Okay, and the group's time. So that's where we're headed, and, and we're going to go slowly, and we're going to lovingly make adjustments as we need. Feel free to stop by next steps to ask us more questions. We need everybody involved to lead this forward, okay? Not just the pastors and the deacons and officers, but everybody needs to be involved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful, Lord, uh, that we have doctrine from your word. We're, we're thankful, Lord, that you've given us scripture. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be a mature church, we pray, Lord, that, that people, uh, that all of our members would know doctrine in a very practical way and be able to know how to use their swords for disciple making. And that we would ra raise subsequent generations of mature Christians 
in response to a world that is more and more post-Christian. And we pray, Lord, ultimately that we would experience revival in our nation, in our world. Be with us as we take the first steps. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.